Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before or since. Tall words proudly saying, we the people. Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truschel, the lead writer for the Lex Rex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush, president of the Lex Rex Institute and a constitutional attorney, although I won't be speaking in that capacity today or really ever on this podcast. I may be speaking as an attorney of our guests, but never of you, the listener, unless, of course, I actually am your attorney, in which case I'm still not speaking in that capacity in this podcast. Right. And on that note, before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice. And That's right. The opinions expressed in this podcast are the opinions of those expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of Lex Rex Institute. And that's actually an important point, because this is not a political podcast. This is a legal issues podcast. Now, obviously, you know, even Alexis de Tocqueville talked about the fact that political issues in the United States inevitably tend to become legal issues. So there's a lot of overlap between legal and political subject matter. But, you know, the reason we may not be spouting zingers like you're used to on a lot of podcasts like this is that this is fundamentally not political. We want to we want our listeners and the American people in general to understand that the law and politics are very different subjects and you approach questions in a very different way. So that's what we're doing here. Uh, we're trying to treat legal issues as legal issues, but obviously some of our opinions are going to seep through. Hence the disclaimer about opinions at the Lex Rex Institute. Oh, I had something I'm supposed to say after that, huh, David? You did? What? I think so. Yes. I'm supposed to say the Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. Its name, Lex Rex Institute. Lex Rex is Latin for the law is king because we believe that law is our only king and that everybody else is subject to it. If you would like to learn more about the Lex Rex Institute or consider contributing to our institute, then please visit our website, www.lexrex.org. Right, that part. I sometimes forget that part exists anyway yes our website indeed does exist it's got actually a lot of great content on it so visit that if you get the opportunity that's not actually what i meant but yeah you should do that <laughs> it's been a couple of weeks since we've so done i this. apologize in advance everybody i'm a little bit jet lagged i just got back from a conference in washington dc actually a, a conference of constitutional attorneys where you know we were able to learn from the best and brightest in the business not that that isn't us already, but uh, some of the, the other best and brightest in the business, <laughs> those that um, whose names you may recognize. So I'm a little bit jet lagged now. If I'm not as sharp as usual, that would be why. <laughs> so yeah, without further ado, David, what are our subjects for today? It's been a while since I reviewed them. Yeah, well, we're playing a little bit of catch up today because we have you know been pushed off some things we meant to cover a long time ago. That's going to include... Uh, a couple of recent Supreme Court cases, um, excuse me, a couple of recent Supreme Court cases. One, uh, well, actually, hold on, let me pull these names up because I forget them. They're very long. And the, the term's finally over. The court term is finally over. So we know that we're not going to be getting new Supreme Court cases from here on out. We're going to be reviewing some of the old ones, and we do have quite a backlog. Part of that is because, David, you were sick last week. Uh, you actually came down with COVID-19, I mm-hmm. guess, um, you know, licked too many doorknobs and came down with COVID-19. But you're recovering now? Yeah, exactly. More or less. And yeah, that's great to hear. Um, Doorknob licking. Yes, thank you. Anyway, (laughs) one of the (laughs) cases... Was that not how you got it then? No. One of the (laughs) cases 
It's American Hospital Association v. Becerra. <laughs> the other is Vega v. And I'm still not actually sure how to pronounce this because I've only ever read it and have not heard any of the audio logs. Teco, Teco, Tico. Don't know how to say it. T-E-K-O-H. That's the other one we're going to be talking about. But before we get into either of those cases, we are going to bring you the next installment of our series, The Supreme Court Hall of Shame. And this Oh, week, that's right. I forgot this was even part of our agenda today. Uh, do you remember what <laughs> well, case we're doing? Hopefully you've got some preparation done because we need you for Griswold v. Connecticut. <laughs> oh, that's a fun one. Okay, good. I'm a little bit prepared on that one. That's, well, at the very least because Justice Clarence Thomas Notably, I guess notably is probably an understated word to describe the way in which he referenced that. But uh, Justice Clarence Thomas referenced that in, of course, his concurrence in Dobbs uh, when the Supreme Court said in Dobbs that the constitutional right to abortion was no longer recognized because the Constitution doesn't actually mention or have much to do with abortion. Clarence Thomas said, you know, I'll do you one better. We, we should have gone a step further than that. We should have overruled the precedent upon which Roe v. Wade had depended. That was Griswold v. Connecticut. And he said, yeah, and also all the rest of Griswold's ilk is up for debate now, too. So that would be things like Lawrence v. Texas that ruled anti-sodomy laws unconstitutional. And even Oberfell v. Hodges, which is the case, of course, that uh, in which Justice Kennedy found that same-sex marriage was a constitutional right. So all of those rights are now up for grabs. It's a very exciting thing for people working in our field. It's not often that you get to take people's constitutional rights away, and especially not rights that are as stupid as those. Okay, we may need to cut some of that, um, but anyway. I'm sorry, uh, I don't mean to say those rights are stupid. They may be great rights, you know, maybe, maybe those are things that you think people ought to have a right to do. The reason I call them stupid is because they aren't mentioned in the Constitution of the United States. Rather, or rather, and this is sort of my segue into Griswold, they are not mentioned in the text of the Constitution of the United States. Because, of course, where are they mentioned? In the emanations of the penumbras of certain rights implied by the text of the Constitution. That's right. So just a little bit of a background on Griswold v. Connecticut. And that's, uh, Griswold that's was a, a challenge. <laughs> I did not make that phrase up. Go back and listen to some of our older episodes for more context and yeah. maybe what a penumbra And we'll probably is. repeat some of that today, too, again, because yeah. it's, you know, it's going to come up. But Griswold v. Connecticut was a, a challenge to a Connecticut law by a guy by the name of Griswold. And what this Connecticut law did was effectively outlawed the use of contraception, birth control. Uh, this case, I believe, was heard in 1963. Is that right, David? 65. That's right, 1965. Okay, so what this case heard, again, was a law, actually a very broadly worded law, that banned contraception. I think the way that it was phrased was any drug, medicinal article, or instrument for the purpose of preventing conception. So that's very broad, you know, basically anything that's used for the purpose of preventing conception. That was outlawed by Connecticut, and of course this ends up being challenged. Gets all the way to the Supreme Court. And the opinion ends up being written by Justice William O. Douglas, who's, you, you know, you may see him again in our Supreme Court Hall of Shame. He is the famous author of Trees Have Standing. Uh, also, you know, and, and we'll get a little bit more into his sort yeah. of his personal life a bit later in this episode. But he's got a number of questionable opinions. He's an FDR appointee appointed by President Franklin Roosevelt. 
and definitely on the left wing of the court. And Griswold is, in my opinion, not exactly his finest hour. So when the Supreme Court looks at the question of whether or not contraception can be prohibited by a state, why don't you guys to think for a minute, what sort of provisions in the Constitution do you think would apply to something like contraception? David, what do you think? What, what kinds of, I mean, assuming you know nothing about Griswold, what sections of the Constitution seem like they might apply to something like contraception? You know, I can't think of any, and I feel like that's kind of the heart of the issue here. There's not You know, it, it's different. Much. The, the best I could do would be something like you're right against random search and seizure. Because well, how but, are you going to enforce a law against contraception without going into people's houses without warrants? Because well, you know, pe- people don't use contraception out on the street. They use it in the privacy of their own homes, right? So, Well, yes, they they could, I suppose. But, there, you know, there are other <laughs> laws that that would probably run afoul of, I think. Um, but Right, right. But as know, a practical matter, if you want to prohibit contraception across the board, you're going to have to be invading people's homes unlawfully, right? I mean, that's that's just likely you're going to have to do that. Yeah, if you're if you're doing anything other than just banning the sale of contraceptive, right, items, which is basically. not what they did. They actually right. banned those devices. You know, I, I read the language to you. They banned the use of any of those things, not just their right. sale, not just their use in interstate commerce. Although a state could not ban them in interstate commerce, they actually banned their use. Right. Now, and that gets into sort of a bigger issue of, you know, if it's illegal to enforce a law, does that make the law itself illegal? That ends up getting hurt at greater length in a case downstream of Griswold in Lawrence v. Texas, uh, where Texas had anti-sodomy laws. But nevertheless, that is not the route that Justice William Douglas pursues. Instead, what's the road that he goes down, David? Do you remember? The right to privacy, which... Yeah, the, which, where do we find that? Where do, where, well, where do we see the right to privacy in the Constitution? That's where the very handy emanations of penumbras, of shadows cast by rights implied in the Bill of Rights come in. Yeah, so we, I summarized this once before. I'll summarize it again. A few different kinds of rights the Constitution protects, at least as it stands in 2022. And actually, you need to specify nowadays, I guess. So in July, <laughs> 5, July 15th, of 2022, the way that it currently stands is that there are a few different kinds of rights, constitutional rights. First kind of constitutional right is a right mentioned in the Constitution by name. That's something like the freedom of speech or the freedom of the press or the right to keep and bear arms or the right against quartering of troops during peacetime. Those sorts of rights, things that are explicitly mentioned usually in the Bill of Rights, possibly in Article 1, Section 9. The second kind of rights are going to be rights that are implied by the Constitution. So what does that mean? Well, that means something that by valid logical inferences must be true if some other right exists. So a good example of that's going to be the right to free association. If we have the right to speak freely, the right to say what we want without government intrusion, and we also have the right to freely exercise our religion, so the right to express various views, those things necessarily and validly imply a right to free association. You know, a right to not hang out with people that we don't like, which you could extend as far as you have a, if you have a business, you can exclude people that you don't want from your business. You know, and oftentimes businesses will have signs out front saying that they reserve the right to exclude people for any reason. Now, obviously, there's going to be limitations on that imposed by other rights, such as 
the Equal Protection Clause of the, of the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. But by and large, free association is going to be an implied right. There are lots of other implied rights. Uh, I don't need to get into an exhaustive list, but that's basically how they work, is you've got other rights in the Constitution, and in order for the valid exercise of those rights to continue to operate unimpeded, you got to have these other rights too. You could actually, you could make that argument about what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, about if if you would need to violate someone's right against random search and seizure, you know, their right to be secure in their person's houses, papers, and effects in order to enforce a particular law, you could say that the right not to have that law is an implied right. But that, again, is not the route that Justice Douglas goes in this case. So that, that's first two categories of rights, rights that are actually stated, rights that are validly implied by the Constitution. What's your third category of rights, David? Emanations from the penumbras. No, no, no. You're skipping. You're skipping one. What's the? Yeah, penumbral rights would be the next. Would be the next group of rights. That that's fair. Okay, so (laughs) we have jumped the category. Which, to be fair, I'm not sure. Does he? Has anyone ever claimed that something was specifically a penumbral right, as you put? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, actually, they were used somewhat. I I don't want to say frequently, but um, with somewhat regularly. You know, there was an accepted usage of the word penumbra or penumbral rights in constitutional jurisprudence pre-Griswold. There was not a fully fleshed out or worked through concept of how penumbral rights work. Typically, the court would conclude against the idea of penumbral rights because, you know, that's, they're, they're, they're too suspect. You know, they're, they're, there's not enough certainty that the, con- that the Constitution actually does protect those things. Uh, but you, you actually, way back in 1950, you get Judge Learned Hand, we talked about him before, a very famous judge. A uh, great name for a judge who, who wrote that the colloquial words of a statute have not the fixed and artificial content of scientific symbols. They have a penumbra, a dim fringe, a connotation, for they express an attitude of will into which it is our duty to penetrate and which we must enforce ungrudgingly when we can ascertain it, regardless of imprecision in its expression. In other words, he, he's talking about statutory interpretation here, not constitutional interpretation. Because remember, statutes can also confer rights upon people, uh, whether it's, you know, they say that you have a right to sue for a particular thing or whatever. You know, they might not be natural rights, but certainly they do confer rights. And what he's saying is even if a statute is poorly expressed, like poorly written, and very unclear what it's trying to accomplish. Statutes exist because somebody's trying to accomplish a particular end. They don't have the fixed content of scientific symbols. They're imprecise, vague, fuzzy. So because of that, there's got to be stuff that statutes can protect or laws can protect that doesn't actually fall within the black letters of its text. And we Black letter of the text we call black letter law and law. You know, that's actually, here's the fixed thing the law actually says. Penumbral law or penumbral rights are going to refer to the things that eh, a little bit fuzzier may be implied by that. And that comes from the meaning of the word penumbra. Last time we talked about this, I think David mentioned, if you're not familiar with this particular area of law, you probably don't know that word. And he also said rightly that that's really because there's no real reason why you ought to be. But David, you gave a good explanation of what the word penumbra meant last time. Can you do that for us again? Yeah, so the penumbra is the edge of a shadow. It's sort of like the word penultimate, which means the thing before the last thing. Umbra or umbro or something like that is the Latin word for shadow. So penumbra, it's like the part right before the shadow, the edge of the shadow. 
Yeah, so where you're transitioning from shadow to non-shadow, right? So it's shadows cast by the text of a statute. You can see sort of the visual metaphor here. The penumbra is stuff where you know, we can see that this, the, the statute is uh, casting its shadow over that thing, so we can validly imply that thing from the text. Now, I think this is extremely suspect. I think the court should not uphold statutes that are unreasonably vague. I believe that those statutes are unconstitutional. In a republic that has a written constitution, yeah. I think specificity is required for a law to be enforced by the courts uh, because you know, that's part of the character of a republic where we are ruled by laws. But not all judges agree with that. Some judges would accept the idea of penumbral rights. You actually have Supreme Court talking about the idea of penumbral rights as early as the Olmstead case, which is a 19, I think 19... 28 case. David, correct me on that if I'm that wrong. sounds right, but let me confirm that. Well, well, he confirms, yeah. In uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who's another very, very famous justice. 1928. 1928. All right, I got that one right. So in, in Holmes' dissent in that case, he talks about, so what, what uh, gosh, take a step back. What Olmsted had to do with was wiretaps, whether or not the government could tap people's wire you know, their phone wires, tap the phone wires and then listen to their phone calls that were going into their house or whether or not they had to obtain a search warrant before they could do that. Now, as we know, the Constitution says that there is a, a right to be secure in your persons, houses, papers, and effects. You know, Justice Black famously in this case says that someone's wire going into their house is neither a person nor a house nor a paper nor an effect. But what the majority of the court says in this case is that, yeah, that is protected by the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. They do not use the word penumbra to describe that. Justice Holmes sort of pejoratively uses the word penumbra to describe the argument that the majority of the court uses in that case. So, you know, because it's not, it's not a person, house, a paper, or an effect, but we're saying it's protected by the Fourth and Fifth Amendments anyway, well, what we're saying is basically, you know, the expression person, houses, papers, and effects is an inclusive category of all the stuff that's yours. And wires, you know, wire going into and out of your house is included in that, so you should be secure in those communications. That's sort of an example of a penumbral right. You know, I, I would not view it that way. I think that the Fourth and Fifth Amendments do protect against wiretapping. I would not say because it's implied by other rights listed in the Constitution, but because the expression person, houses, papers, and effects, I think is very clearly intended to include a broad swath of subject categories. So, you know, Sort of different argument there, but that's an example of penumbral rights as at least addressed by the court prior to Griswold. So three categories. Last one took a while to describe, so let's restate all of them so far. We've got <laughs> rights that are mentioned in the Constitution, rights that are can be validly inferred from the rights that are mentioned in the Constitution by logical necessity. And then we've got rights that are sort of more nebulously implied by the Constitution or found in the penumbras of the rights that are expressed in the Constitution. And as we mentioned, this last category, this third category, yeah, pretty suspect. Usually only described pejoratively to say somebody else did legal reasoning badly and only brought up kind of infrequently by the court up to this point. So yeah, last one's not really broadly accepted. So what ends up happening in Griswold? What's the fourth category of rights that are now introduced? Emanations from that third category of penumbral rights. So what's an know, emanation from a penumbra, David? It's basically a vibe, you know, it's just sort of a, a, a feeling you get. <laughs> what does it mean for something to emanate? 
And emanation is sort of, well, it's hard to even describe because most of the context people use that word in, at least that I'm, you know, habitually reading, are already like Aristotelian philosophy, like chain of being kind of thing, Plotinus, yeah, like, and not not even er, early medieval philosophy, the sort that's as as cerebral and and detached from the physical world as possible. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, basically, not not even Aristotelian, <laughs> actually, more Neoplatonic, which is sort of yeah, like, yeah, you know, that's... if you combine some real nerdy <laughs> philosophy with people trying to do magic for some reason, that kind of thing. So yeah, an emanation, Boy, those are... it's. It's, uh, the only thing nerdier than regular nerdy philosophy is mixing that with the magicians. But, but <laughs> so the, the way that I think of the word emanation, to ground it for some of us who aren't as versed in philosophical disciplines, think of one of those fountains where you got like a top basin and then a basin underneath that and a basin underneath that. And they all pour one, you know, the top one fills up when it's done filling up, it spills over into the one underneath it. And that one fills up. It spills over to one underneath that. I, each of those levels could be called an emanation of the one yeah, before. I, I guess probably most concretely, it's like flowing out of is, yeah. is what an emanation is. Yeah. And it's there. David's right. There are philosophical implications of being lesser in substance. All kinds of yeah. it's, stuff there. It's a very <laughs> kind it's, of weird idea in some ways. But. And the, the only reason I mention that is I think that those connotations are pretty clearly being imported here. Yeah, with, yeah. You know, when Justice Douglas talks about emanations of penumbras. So what's sort of the image we're getting at when we refer to that, David? It's almost like the thing is getting more and more indistinct and hazy as you're getting further and further away from something that you have a real firm grasp of. Yeah, so, while well, the Constitution has the full effulgence of being, <laughs> penumbral right. <laughs> Yeah. Penumbra uh, rights do not, right? Yeah, you know, the, the Constitution is the thing that we're really sure of. You know, if it says a word, like, if it says something in there, then there's basically no question about it. You've got a right to free speech. You've got a right to, as you said, not quarter troops. You've got a right to, to keep and bear arms. And then you get, you know, one step further from that where it's like, okay, in order for some of these things to exist, some other things have to exist. Otherwise, they wouldn't work. So we know those are protected. Yeah. And then... When you get to the penumbral thing, it's like, well, that might imply that you have these other rights. And then when you get to the Griswold level, you're saying this kind of thing is also a thing that sort of was implied by other yeah. things. And well, let, let's make we it, should probably let's make it real, real as basic as I possibly can. Let's say that I create a law that says when you sit down at the dinner table, you must eat with your fork in your left hand and your knife in your right hand. The part, thing that's actually stated there is about the use of the fork in the left hand and the knife in the right hand, right? What's implied by that? Well, dinner tables, that you can have dinner tables. That's a logical necessity. Uh, that you should have a fork and a knife. Those are both logical necessities. So at least one fork, at least one knife. That you eat dinner. That's a logical necessity. So what would be something that is penumbral of that? Maybe plates. Plates might be penumbral of that because you could say the fork in the left hand, knife in the right hand implies that Whoever wrote that law cares about good manners. And you certainly don't have good manners if you aren't using a plate. So that could be something that you say is penumbral to that. What's something that would be an emanation of a penumbra with respect to this? That you should copy the English because that's not how Americans eat, sir. I was, it's a hypothetical, David. <laughs> <laughs> that's the reason they had to make a law, is people weren't already doing it. Yeah. 
but <laughs> no, uh, you know, and for the record, I am very much in favor of the American habit of switching uh, your fork between left and right, depending on whether or not you're cutting. But I don't particularly care. This is an example. <laughs> so, <laughs> I stay, I prefer the American way of doing things. Thank you. Um, All right, David. <laughs> it's noted. We'll make yeah. a record of that. But anyway, a penumbral right here you. might be something like you don't do not offend your dinner guests. Might be something that's penumbral yeah. here, because you know that that's we said that. I'm sorry. Let me say that it's found in emanations of penumbras yeah. here. So you mentioned the penumbral right is use a dinner plate or or even something like have good manners at yeah. the dinner table. Be polite. And now that we're assuming have good manners, now that that penumbral thing is something that we're taking for granted. Well, we can go from there to don't offend other people at the table. You can see how we've gotten pretty tangential and strayed pretty far from the original dictate here, which was eat with your fork in your left hand, knife in your right hand. So yeah, same thing going on with the Constitution. Seems like if somebody's intentionally using this particular metaphor, are they going to have a good opinion of whether or not the Constitution guarantees this thing, or are they going to conclude the Constitution doesn't guarantee this thing? Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of conceding in some ways that the Constitution really doesn't say anything about this. Um, it sounds like a really pejorative way to describe your opponent's opinion, right? Which is yeah. exactly what the phrase penumbra was up until Griswold v. Connecticut. For whatever reason, Justice Douglas just embraces all these concepts on their head and says, yeah, I'm talking about the most tangential thing possible here and saying that it's a guaranteed right under the Constitution. <laughs> probably not. I'm probably going to keep doing that. It makes me but feel anyway, like I'm that's, on friends. Yeah, so then what, what he does is not only does he talk about this these rights that are found in emanations from penumbras cast by the rights implied by the guarantees expressly stated in the Constitution. But it's not even a particular right that it comes from, you know, First Amendment, Second Amendment, nor is it even from a group of rights that were written at the same time. The First, Third, Fourth, Fifth, and Fourteenth Amendments. The right to privacy is found in emanations from penumbras cast by rights implied by the First, Third, Fourth, Fifth, and 14th Amendments. What are those rights? Well, First Amendment's free speech and freedom of religion. Uh, th you know, Third Amendment is quartering of troops. Fourth Amendment is right to be secure in your person, houses, papers, and effects. And Fifth Amendment is right not to be defended against yourself in, in a criminal proceeding. And 14th Amendment is, of course, that's the one of the post-Civil War amendments that has uh, equal protection and privileges or immunities and due process of the law. So yeah, it's implied by sort of all of those things. You know, you throw all these things into a basket, jumble them all together, and then you get emanations cast by all of their penumbras implying something called the right to privacy. So that's a very firmly guaranteed constitutional <laughs> right, right? I mean, there's no way anybody could ever disagree with that. You've established it beyond any shadow of a doubt, no pun intended. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, when we're talking about emanations and of penumbras and stuff, we're, we're mostly talking about vibes. And, you know, that's yeah. a... That's a pretty clear indication that he's saying the general vibe of the U.S. Constitution is in favor of privacy that the government can't invade. So, yeah, you know. Now, is yeah, there any like, reason that a guy like William O. Douglas might want to conclude this way? Now, I'm not going to suggest that he was influenced by sort of per his personal disposition or his personal life choices. But, David, how much do you know about William O. Douglas? I don't know. I know nothing about the man. 
But All right. Like Do you know how many times he was married? I don't. Uh, I'm going to assume either zero or a very high number. Four. The answer is four. Okay. And high for the time. You know, high for the time. Ju- Justice Douglas had a habit of marrying his law clerks, his female law clerks. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it, it happened. <laughs> yeah, it happened more than once. At, at one point, he married a 22-year-old law clerk when he was, I think, 65 years old. Yeah. Okay. That's uh. <laughs> well. Yeah. I would, I'll. And, and, I'll... I'll leave it up to your imagination, what I'm thinking. And like I said, this wasn't a one-time thing. He didn't just once say, you know, I'm gonna, I'm having a midlife crisis. I'm going to divorce my wife and marry my 20-something law clerk. This was a more than a one-time thing. It happened several times. I'm forgetting if two of the marriages were to his law clerks or if it was just, or if it was three, but it was at least, it was at least two were to people who were directly working for him and in their 20s. Yeah. You can see, you know, and if he's marrying them, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say things that are not proven about, about Justice Douglas, but something may have been going on beforehand. You can see why he might be in favor of a right to privacy, particularly in regard to contraception. Perhaps, but, you know. This is just a theory. This this is, this is also a good opportunity to reemphasize that... The th- the point of this podcast is not that here we are saying you shouldn't have the ability to use contraception. I don't think, as I mentioned, there's anything in the Constitution that's directly on point as far as that goes. And, you know, you're free to have your own opinions about the propriety or impropriety of using contraception. Not the point here. The point is hard to get at a constitutional right to privacy the route, at least, that this decision took. Um, and David is very much voicing the opinion, which I was about to quote, of Justice Hugo Black, who wrote the dissent in this case, who says exactly that. What he says is, let me find it. I get nowhere in this case by talk of a constitutional right of privacy as an emanation from one or more constitutional provisions. I like my privacy as well as the next one, but I am nevertheless compelled to admit that the government has a right to invade it unless prohibited by some specific constitutional provision. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, that is exactly the mission of the Lax Rex Institute is what, what Justice Black has expressed right there. We don't really care less how much you like something, how much we like something. That's not what's constitutionally relevant. What's constitutionally relevant is... The Constitution. Yeah. And the Constitution just doesn't say a word about... Actually, I won't even go that far. Constitution may guarantee a right to privacy, but certainly not by emanations found in the penumbras of rights implied by rights stated in the Constitution. If you're going to find a right to privacy, that's not how you do it. The way that you do it is by exactly what I was saying earlier. You say that it's a a logical necessity of the Fourth Amendment that we have a right to privacy, because that's the only way in which we, we can be secure in our persons, houses, papers, and effects. That would have been a much better basis for asserting a right to privacy, would have been a much better basis for saying that state laws banning contraception are unconstitutional. I'm not going to give my opinion on whether or not that would have been the correct way to rule in this case, because I don't know that I have an opinion on that. But that certainly would have been a valid argument. I would have very little problem with that. Yeah. And I, you know, I think I can say, for me personally, at least, I wouldn't 
vote for someone who made a ban, a statewide ban on contraception part of their platform, probably, because I think among other oh, things... Oh, well, now you're getting into politics, David. Yeah, no, no, this is a political opinion, but I think among other things, <laughs> as we mentioned earlier, you know, if you make that law, you are going to run into some very real issues on how to enforce it, because it certainly seems very yeah. hard to do that. And if Oh, well, if we're talking are, politics... Yeah. Yeah. If people are if we're talking politics now, I, I can say I'm a staunch opponent of, of laws yeah. that prohibit contraception. I think that is rank tyranny. Yeah. I would probably campaign against those kind of laws. Yeah. And, you know, as, a, as I alluded to earlier, you know, if the sole import of a, of a statewide law against the use of these things is to stop people from actively using contraceptives in public, which obviously implies other acts that they're doing in public. That's one thing. But yeah, you know, you, it's hard to prevent someone from owning a thing without saying that you're going to be checking their belongings over. Yeah, and over that is again. just none of the government's business. You know, government yeah. does not belong in the bedroom. And you know, the stuff probably shouldn't be used in the streets, as David just mentioned. But the government <laughs> certainly does not belong in the bedroom. Yeah. And so anyway, it's just know. none of their business, you know, I'll, I'll let that's, you say, you know, <laughs> I'm not yeah. going to stand up for this Connecticut law, but I think and, you know, we've we've made this point before worth reiterating because this is sort of at the heart of what we're doing as an organization. Political opinion is not the same as legal reasoning. Just because this right. was a law that we think was a bad law to enact doesn't mean that there is a basis to strike it down on vague constitutional grounds. Right. It may be unconstitutional, certainly not for the reasons that Justice Douglas gave us. Yeah. Anyway. So Justice Douglas gets our dunce cap for today. I think that concludes our Supreme Court Hall of Shame section. Are you, oh, you were going to get the clip of the, the shame thing. I was, and I completely forgot. You know, So just say, me. shame, shame, yeah. Justice Douglas. It's, you shouldn't <laughs> right. have done that. That was very bad. You also, in my personal, this is not a legal opinion, but in my personal opinion, you really shouldn't have kept divorcing your wives and marrying 20-something <laughs> clerks either. Right. I, that's just kind of a gross thing to do. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. So I guess, you know, this is the last couple of minutes have been opinion corner um, where we are specifically <laughs> and explicitly saying our personal opinions. But anyway, hall of shame, aside from our personal opinions, bad reasoning. So Griswold, despite its bad reasoning, ends up being a very significant case historically. Mm-hmm. It's really the basis for the finding of Roe v. Wade ends up being, the, as we mentioned earlier, you know, finding the constitutional right to abortion, a basis of Lawrence v. Texas, which says that anti-sodomy laws are unconstitutional, and really the basis for Oberfeld v. Hodges, which is the case that, of course, recognizes a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. So all that to say, when Clarence Thomas, in his concurring opinion in the Dobbs case, that was the case that overruled Roe v. Wade, when he mentions, you know, all these things are up for grabs again, really what he's talking about is just overruling Griswold. And it's because Griswold is really pretty bad case law. You know, he, it's not just because he wants to come after your rights. It's not that he's upset that people have various rights and wants to take them away. He's not just a yeah. mean old conservative. He dislikes the reasoning of Griswold. He has valid legal grievances with it, grievances that we share that have nothing to do with political opinion. Uh, and, and because of that, thinks that, you know, that's up for grabs and, you know, ought to be overruled again. And there's a strong argument that really, Gris, really the Supreme Court didn't go far enough in, in Dobbs in that it should have overruled Griswold. I don't want to get into that, whether or not that's true, but that's what Clarence Thomas is talking about. I wanted to clarify that for the record. Yeah. Anyway, but moving on now to the first of our two sort of, I guess, regular coverage segments is going to be about the case 
American Hospital Association v. Becerra, Secretary of Health and Human Services. This was decided one month ago from when we're recording this on June 15th. Like we said, we've got a a bit of of a backlog here of cases to work through. There was obviously big news with the Dobbs case, among others, and we had to do our 4th of July special, and then I had to go and get COVID. So we're trying to play catch up. We wanted to get to this one a lot earlier, but here we go. And so basically the the real reason we wanted to get into this case specifically because, you know, it's no, it's no longer, you know, hot news, I guess, to the extent that it ever was, but it does. Don't apologize for that. We'll, we'll be covering <laughs> lots of cases that aren't hot news. That's not a problem. No, it's, no, no. There's still good law. So Yeah. Well, but, and and there might, might be cases you didn't hear about either. So th- this right. one, I think, did not make headlines like many of the others did, but it no. is very significant. No, and specifically because it touches on something that, actually, I don't remember if we've talked about Chevron much on the podcast. We've certainly written about Chevron and, you know, it's, it's been in some of our other materials, but it's an issue that we've dealt with in various places yeah. For, but Chevron doctrine basically has to do with the way courts interpret the powers and prerogatives of executive agencies. Yeah. And when people refer to Chevron doctrine, just to be clear, what they really mean is Chevron and its successor case, Brand X. Yeah. Uh, and when the current application of Chevron is going to be guided by Brand X. And basically, what, what so what is Chevron deference? Well, as we know, we mentioned. I think we have mentioned this before when talking about non-delegation and whatnot, but there's three branches of government, three things in our federal government, and that's all there is in our federal government. There's the legislative branch, that's the House of Representatives and the Senate. There's the executive branch, that's the president. And there's the judicial branch, that's the Supreme Court and all other inferior federal courts which Congress shall ordain to establish. That's it. That's all there is. So what's all this other stuff? Things like the EPA or the CDC or the FDA or all these alphabet agencies. What the heck are those? Well, those will be called executive agencies. They are created by enactments of Congress. So created by Article One branch of government, the legislative branch, and then controlled by Article Two branch of government, the executive branch. Obviously, there's a great deal of concern about executive overreach, the degree to which our government is now run by Things which really were not contemplated or debatably permitted by the Constitution because one guy, president, can't really conceivably know or control all the things that all of these executive agencies are doing. That's the majority of our government, though, is these agencies. Is there other, is, are there other ways government could go about accomplishing its goals? You know, sure. I mean, Congress could hire lots of staffers and they could have their staff do all that stuff instead. That might be debatably a better way of doing it, but it's not how we do it. The way that we do it is through executive agencies. And agencies, of course, proliferate their own laws. We call those regulations. I've mentioned this before in my anecdote about the Federal Register, where you know they were passing around that book in my law school class that was about two and a half inches thick. And I thought, that's not too bad for all the new regulations created in a year. Of course, by the time it passed through all the rows and got to me, I was able to see the spine of that book and see that it was volume one of 267. Yeah. So <laughs> that was quite a bit more regulations than I had uh-huh. initially thought. <laughs> but the, those are all of the regulations that are created by executive agencies within a year. So that's a lot. You know, more than e- even, even somebody who's the self-proclaimed smartest person or knows the most, or has the best words, or, or somebody who is really, really on the ball, probably is not going to be able to keep track of and monitor all of those new regulations that are created every single year. So that's sort of the problem there. So how, how do we deal with 
administrative law, given that there's so doggone much of it and courts are going to encounter it eventually. Well, this question is only complicated by the fact that there are also administrative courts. We talked about that in our episode where we address the SEC case that came out recently. David, which episode number is that? Oh, gosh, I have forgotten. Uh, I wanted to, That was the case where the guy had a very strange name, like Jarksy or something like that. Jarksy. Yeah, that's why I said SEC, SEC. case, because I don't remember. Um, <laughs> let me let me see if I can f- figure out which episode number that was, because that's that's probably one that's if you're really interested in this stuff, that's worth listening to. Yeah, that was I, I'm breezing by it all because we yeah. can't go over it all in detail again. That's probably where we went into how executive delegation works. Yeah, that, most thoroughly to this point. Going to be episode number four. That was from May 23rd earlier this year. If you're you know, if you if you want to know more about the context for Chevron and, and sort of how this all works. You can listen to that episode, but yeah. So yeah. Anyway, all that to say when a regulation, so when something that is not statutory law, it's not a code written by Congress. It's it's a regulation written by the executive who doesn't write laws. Remember executive enforces the laws. They don't write them. Nevertheless, we do have them creating sort of sort of policy for how they're going to go about enforcing enactments of Congress. That's what we call regulations. That's all regulations are, or rather all that they should be where, however, Chevron and its accompanying brand X turn regulations into a whole heck of a lot more than that. Yeah. They're not just policy for how the executive goes about enforcing something because of what we call Chevron deference. So as long so when an agency is proliferating regulations to interpret enactments of Congress, so to interpret statutes, how much deference do we give that regulatory interpretation of the statute? Well, What Chevron says is that so long as the interpretation is plausible, that interpretation controls. The interpretation of the executive agency controls. Obviously, this creates huge separation of powers issues because it leaves it to the executive to settle really cases and controversies and to be sort of the final voice in statutory interpretation. This is much of the pushback against Chevron that's gone on in recent years. Uh, But that's that's what we're talking about when we talk about Chevron deference. Yeah. And... Yeah, I, I do want to add one other sort of element to the Chevron deference is whether or not Congress has already legislated on the same issue, basically. So if, if there's something yeah. in other legislation that has you know an answer one way or another about the question that's being brought up, then Congress controls. But anyway, in general... And the, reason, you know, the reason we don't like this, the reason Lex Rex Institute doesn't like Chevron deference, I can say this very simply, nobody... A prosecutor should not also be your judge. Your judge should be a different person from your prosecutor. The executive branch of government, every executive agency, they're responsible for enforcing rules, enforcing rules that Congress makes. They make a whole bunch more rules to do this because they want a variety of reasons. Not going to get into that. (laughs) But that's their job is enforcing rules. They're a prosecutor. Yeah. If they get to pick how an enactment of Congress is interpreted... They are also a judge yeah. because that's the job of a judge. Yeah. And you really don't want your prosecutor to be your judge. Yeah. No, and, you know, it's it's all, you know, it's a classic situation where it's like, you know, you you hire somebody to do a certain job and they want to feel like they're, you know, their work is important and justified. And maybe they want to get a little bit bigger of a budget for next year. So they want you to think their work is important and justified. And you may find them taking a somewhat more generous interpretation of their role than you had in mind initially. And that's kind well, of... Particularly the, because the 
the aim of a prosecutor is to find people guilty or right. in civil context to find them liable under particular laws. Yeah. That's just their job. You know, our legal system is adversarial for a reason because people have interests and we know that if people, both sides are advancing those interests, they can't be objective about it. Right. So, you know, there's not a, there's not much you can do to more jeopardize the objectivity of the judge, you know, who decides which party is in the right, than to make them the same person that is prosecuting. Right. And, yeah, and, you know, as that, that case that we talked about in that prior episode entailed, you know, as we got into, <clears throat> there were lots of instances where the, the same agency would be the one who made the decision to sort of charge you with something, was in charge of prosecuting you during your trial for that, and also was hearing the trial as the judge, all in one. And I am the law. <laughs> exactly. You know, there's, yeah, I am the law. <laughs> you, you run into some issues there. And so this, this some particular issues, yeah. case... So I guess look at the converse of this. So this is, this is about as absurd as if they told cigarette companies that they got to pick whether or not they were violating anti-cigarette regulations. Or if they told oil companies that they got to pick whether or not they were operating safely. Yeah. It's, they are an interested party. They have an interest in a particular outcome. They ought not be the judge. Now, it's, I'm not saying they ought to be regulating cigarette companies or oil companies at all. That's not the position I'm taking. I'm saying that if you do regulate those things, it makes no sense to have the person that you're regulating being the one that decides the outcome. Well, it makes just as little sense to have the person that's regulating them being the one that decides the outcome. Right. Anyway, all that's background to why we're going to be talking specifically about this case. Again, American Hospital Association v. Becerra. But there was a lot of conversation while this case was still being decided about Chevron and whether or not the court would take this opportunity to overturn Chevron doctrine. And, you know, long story short, and it, they, they you, didn't. From the name Chevron, that should, that should clue you in a little bit. Chevron, obviously, is an oil company. Yeah. Not real popular actors. The way that you get a doctrine like this is by having somebody that pretty much everybody thinks is wrong from the get-go. And they say, yes, it's totally fine if the prosecutor gets to pick the rules for him. Yeah. Yeah. But so anyway, in, in short, the court. Bad didn't facts make actually... bad law. That's a demonstration of the maxim. Bad facts make bad law. Yeah. The court did not overturn Chevron in this case. We'll get into how it could have and, and why it didn't in a minute. But all that's background. So what was this case? Well, basically, the Department of Health and Human Services is authorized to reimburse hospitals for costs that they incur for providing drugs through the Medicare system. And they're supposed to reimburse them according to a specific methodology that's set out in law. Long story short. They have short, a schedule. You know, th this, this thing gets compensated this amount. Right. Long story short. If you give somebody a splenectomy, then... You give them five dollars, or probably more than <laughs> well, that. Well, in this imagine. case, specifically for for uh, costs of drugs rather than other costs, but at any rate, okay, then whatever yeah. immuno Xanax is this much, or... and, and Tylenol is this much. Who cares? You know, whatever specific yeah. drugs get paid, you know, reimbursed at specific levels. The law gave them two specific methods that they could use to do that. One was they could actually survey how much hospitals were paying to acquire these drugs. 
and then use that as the basis for their reimbursement. They had, you know, the ability to make adjustments to that. Or, so based it on the free market cost of those things, yeah. Yeah, the or market value. The other method that they could use is they could not actually pay attention to what the hospitals were paying. They could just sort of talk to the manufacturers of those drugs about their average sale price and then use that as the basis for their reimbursement, again, with adjustments. But the critical point was that only if they actually surveyed the hospitals were they allowed to reimburse at different rates for different, you know, what the, what the law calls hospital groups. Now... They didn't do that. They so they, so just just to be clear, what David's talking about. I think you said it clearly, but people listen to this on in the car and whatnot. So yeah, if they wanted to say that Hospital A, say that Hospital A is St. John's, and Hospital B is Memorial, you know, we'll call it Metropolis Memorial Hospital. If they wanted to charge those two hospitals different amounts for the drugs that they were providing, they had to go with the first method. Yeah. And that was the market value of those drugs. Right. That makes make sense. The hospitals would have to be in different markets. Yeah. Now, basically, they decided they did want to reimburse at different rates for different hospitals, but that it was, among other things, too burdensome to actually go through the work of surveying that many hospitals and finding their costs. You know, at, at, yeah, they've only got several hundred billion dollars a year in budget. There's well, no way they could afford to do it. So. At any rate, you know... I, I, if I you probably don't have several the, hundred billion, but it's probably it's probably more money. money than you or I will ever see. It's a lot of money, but you know, if I recall the factual background of the case correctly, since that particular law went into effect, saying that they had to pick one of those two methods, they've never actually successfully managed to do a survey. They concluded it was going to be difficult and take a lot of time and a lot of effort and money, and it was kind of a waste of resources. So they decided we're not going to do that. We're just going to base it on the, the you know manufacturer's price, but they still wanted to vary the reimbursement rate. And a group of hospitals who got basically under-reimbursed you know, relative to other ones sued and said, you can't do that. If you're going to reimburse us at different rates, you have to go through the step of doing this survey. Do you know if they gave any reason for the difference in treatment? Basically, I do, yes. And it was... They wanted to reimburse hospitals that participated in a particular program, which I noted the name of it in my <laughs> notes. Um, so it, it was to incentivize using something that the that they wanted them to use. Well, actually, no, opposite. It was a it was a money saving cost. Um, they okay. So there was a, a program called the 340B program, which basically uh, applies to hospitals that serve low income or rural areas, and they pay you know, cheaper prices for drugs, basically. I, I don't remember exactly how the details of that program works, but however that program works, those hospitals get drugs at a cheaper rate. So okay. DHS wanted to say, okay, you got those drugs for treat for cheaper, so we're going to reimburse you less for what you spent on those. And Right, we're going, that, that makes sense. You, know, you, you spent less on the drugs, we're going to reimburse you what you spent. Right. So... The but the law was, doesn't say that they can do that. The, the problem was, exactly, that <laughs> yeah. the law didn't allow for that unless they surveyed hospitals, which they were unwilling to do for various reasons. So the fight was over. So they just, they just used their list of who participated in this program is what they did? I, as I understand it, yes. That, you know, that there could be more to it than that, okay. but that's my understanding of it, yes. It doesn't really matter. I'm just trying to give people some mental grasp of what's going on here. Right. 
Rather than running surveys of how much they were paying, they just looked at a list of who's who's in this program that lets them pay less for drugs. Well, we'll compensate them less because they're paying less. Yeah, and I, I believe that the way that program worked was like, you know, you paid a set percentage of, you know, some standard version of the price. So like you were paying 70% or yeah, 75%. Yeah, that's usually how it works. You know, whatever it may be. And yeah, so the... And, Again, you can understand too many why, programs makes it too confusing. Yeah, <laughs> you can understand why DHS wouldn't want to pay them the same amount. That's you know from their perspective. Well, you got it for cheaper. Why do you need to be paid more than you actually spent on this? It's a waste of our money. You know, on a certain level, very understandable. Problem is, yeah, they could be using that money for their administrators and giving them bigger paychecks and pensions. Yeah. Problem is, Congress gave DHS a specific <laughs> way they had to do this that DHS basically said they didn't want to do. And they argued, among other things, that the text of the law... Actually, I shouldn't even say the text of the law. They argued that... So it, basically they said that if they decided to apply a congressional law, so an actual law, statutory law, in a particular way, the courts didn't have any right to say their interpretation of that law was wrong. So even though the text of the law very explicitly went against what they were trying to do, they said, we've interpreted it that way anyway, so we're going to do it. Yeah, And And you don't have any right to change it, which is, is arguably, I mean, you could say that's not inconsistent with the Brand X decision. Yeah. And so this is where the Chevron issue entered the picture. And I'm, again, saying Chevron is shorthand, as you've mentioned, Chevron isn't the the real final word on this. The Chevron but, regime, which yeah. includes Brand X. Yeah. yeah. So people were anticipating that the court would take this opportunity to say, you know what, Chevron's out the window. They didn't do that. I think it's actually a good instance of, you know, contrary to what many commentators would have you believe, the court has actually been fairly restrained in a lot of their recent decisions. Yeah. It's just an excellent instance of judicial restraint. Yeah, this is another instance be- where... Because, yeah, be- because the standard, the Chevron standard, is whether or not the agency's interpretation is a plausible reading right. of the congressional enactment. Here, there was no good faith argument that you could plausibly read the statute to say that they could determine who was compensated in the manner that they'd chosen. And there's so on that. Therefore, point, you don't even get to the point of whether or not you overrule Chevron. You just say this doesn't meet the requirements of Chevron. Yeah, and to, on that point, there are a couple I thought noteworthy elements from the oral argument that I I want to bring up. And I'm quoting: This is Scotus Blog reporting on this. Scotus Blog, as you know, you can probably tell by the name, is a website that's you know sort of devoted to Supreme Court stuff. Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS. But so they, they reported on the oral argument in this case, and there were a couple parts that I thought were interesting. They say, Justice Clarence Thomas asked Verrilli, and that's um, the attorney for the, the, the hospital group here, if he was, quote, arguing that we should overrule Chevron to get to the statutory approach that you're taking. Verrilli demurred, saying, we think this is a situation in which the statute is clear, unambiguous, and therefore, one doesn't get to the question of whether Chevron needs to be overruled. The, yeah. They, they go on to say... After exactly that, what we just said. Yeah. Uh, they go on to say, Justice Brett Kavanaugh didn't join in the questions about overturning Chevron. Instead, he asked for really if his argument was basically, quote, to take footnote nine of Chevron seriously, a footnote that urges the courts to employ traditional tools of statutory construction in order to ascertain that Congress had an intention on the precise question at issue. Verrilli confirmed that it was. So, and that's yeah. what I was alluding to earlier about the 
other element of Chevron, which is to say that if Congress has actually legislated on the issue in question, that is what goes. So a point that I don't think we've hit in any kind of detail before on this podcast is that courts hear cases and controversies. They don't just hear a law as such. So you don't just send an issue to a court and they get to opine on whatever the heck they want as long as it's related to that law or that matter. That's not how it works. There has to be a specific issue that is raised by one of the parties. You know, this law is actually illegal because of X, Y, Z. The court hears that issue and they rule on that issue. So what would you have needed to get a court to overrule Chevron? Well, you would have needed to have some instance in which a gov- you know, you know, an executive agency was interpreting a, an enactment of Congress, and they did have a plausible reading of that congressional enactment. You know, their interpretation was something that was consistent with the words that the Congress had enacted. That's the sort of case that you would need in front of the court to get Chevron overturned. Yeah. Here, because the interpretation was inconsistent with what Congress had enacted, you don't get that far. You don't right. get to overturning Chevron because you have not met the requirements of Chevron, which require that the reading of the statute has to be a plausible one. Because it was not a plausible one, all the court has to say is you have not met the requirements of the law that we already have. That's a restrained decision. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think if you were to... I I hope that's clear to people who aren't versed in this stuff, but... Yeah, well, you know, I think if you were to take a lot of the media commentary that's been, you know, around lately on certain things that the court has decided, if you were to take that at face value... You might expect, in this situation, the court to just seize on any opportunity to overturn Chevron, which is an unpopular doctrine with certain quarters. And they just didn't do that. If they really wanted to seize on this opportunity, they probably could have. They probably could have said, well, you know what? We actually see where the department's coming from. You could read it that way. But, you know, ultimately, Chevron was wrong and they shouldn't be, you know, we we shouldn't let their interpretation rule, even if it is plausible. We should do something else instead. They didn't do that. And they didn't need to do that. There's, you know, some other things that could be said about this, but I think that was the main point was that, you know, contrary to popular belief, the court is very often quite restrained in its rulings. At some point, we may get a case where it really does get at the meat of the Chevron concept. And, you know, what happens then will be... It's tough to get that case. Yeah. What, what might happen then would be obviously a, a lot of interest, but this was a case where, you know, I think the, the, the court acted rightly here by keeping it at the, you know, most limited scope they could. Yep. And, you know, anyway, worth noting. We, we're in favor of judges ruling on the matter before them. Yeah. Uh, but not, not on matters that are not before them. And, and, and the reason why I say it's, it's tough to get a case that would be a good challenge to Chevron is because... If it's a plausible reading of Congress's enactment, it's hard for you to get to the Supreme Court on that. Right. Because more likely than not, a judge is probably going to agree with that reading. Yeah. yeah. So more often, ones that get appealed more times are going to be implausible readings. Now, there, there are openings here. If you think that you run afoul of some kind of administrative law, any kind of regulation, and you think that it's just not a plausible reading of 
a statute that Congress has enacted. Absolutely contact us because these cases are really worth bringing. Uh, but I think that's probably all I should say about this case. Um, we yeah. are running a bit over. So what's our last sub subject, David? Yeah, so the other case that we're going to talk about today, again, I, I still have not heard the second party in this case's name pronounced. So I'm going to guess that it's uh, Tico. It could be Teco, 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 not sure. But Vega v. Tico, we alluded to this one, I think, a couple of weeks ago. This is a case that has to do with Miranda rights. So we were talking a bit about that earlier in very, very broad strokes. But basically, the question before the court here, and I think this one is one that has been reported badly, as you, I think you yeah, mentioned really the last badly. time you brought this up. It's not a case where the court said that the Miranda rights don't matter. And for those of you who aren't familiar, the Miranda rights are the things that you know from you have the right shows, to remain yeah. silent. Anything you say can and will be held against you in accordance with the law. You have a right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed to you. It's, you know, all those things. And, yeah. and Miranda was a case, Miranda of the United States, which, and what Miranda did was created a series of what the court calls prophylactic rules. Prophylactic means they're intended to prevent harm. So are they actual rights? Well, that's kind of what's at issue in this case. But right. they, they're certainly stated as rights. We call them Miranda rights. But technically, we all sort of know that those are not really the rights that the Constitution requires. Constitution has, or the court has, has historically required these particular rights to ensure that things that actually are rights don't get violated. Because if we don't have some kind of prophylactic rules to protect against violation, we're pretty sure it's going to happen. So that's what Miranda does. Yeah. Uh, and, and all of this stuff, any kind of criminal procedure type law, which just means laws that apply when someone's being investigated for a crime or prosecuted for a crime, uh, all of these laws, typically, if they are violated, the result is going to be exclusion of evidence. Right. Uh, we call that fruit of the poisonous tree. We refer to that before. Um, what that basically means is poisonous tree is, is government agent breaking the law. And any fruit thereof gets excluded from court. So anything that they found, any evidence they obtained by violating your rights is something they cannot use against you. So in Miranda context, what that means is if they don't read your Miranda rights, if they don't tell you when, you know, at the, I'm not going to get into when Miranda rights attached here. That's probably a subject for a different time. But when Miranda rights have attached and they're required to read you those rights, if they don't do it, and then you say something to incriminate yourself and they write that down, they write it like as a confession or whatever. They cannot use that against you because right. you have not been informed of your rights. So th that's the way that Miranda works. Relatedly, there's also a section of the United States Code. It's section 1983. What 1983 does is allows for civil damages when somebody violates or so when somebody deprives a person of a constitutionally or statutorily protected right. Yeah. So deprive somebody of their rights, you can sue. Government agent takes your rights away, you can sue that government agent for money. Yeah. So what happened in this case is somebody's Miranda rights had been violated. I believe the evidence did get uh, did get excluded in court. Yeah. So I, I want to take one level. second to um, to back up. So all that to say, you know, sort of as as preface to this case, because I think there's been some misinformation or mis you know apprehensions of this case out there. The court didn't say anything about the ability of prosecutors to use evidence that was obtained yeah. when you weren't properly Mirandized. It has nothing to do with yeah, that. It has nothing to do with the Miranda rights as such. What yeah. it has to do with is ability to recover under 1983. Right. So in anyway. Which I, are totally separate. So two, two totally separate things. First one is the government suit against you. Yeah. It's a criminal proceeding. 
That's the one where your Miranda rights apply. That's where the evidence is getting excluded if they didn't respect your Miranda rights. Yeah. Then after that happens, after that trial is totally said and done, whether or not you're found guilty, you could be found not guilty, it doesn't really matter. After that, you come back and you sue the government saying, you violated my rights, I want you to give me money because I'm entitled to damages for the violation of my rights. Totally separate suit. That's your suit against them. Right. That's where this case applies. Yeah. And anyway, so as to your question, you are correct. In the actual criminal trial, the, you know, because what, what it comes down to was, actually, I, I don't even remember the party's names uh, correctly. I think Vega was the police officer investigating, if I remember correctly. It doesn't really matter, but yeah, it, it's easier if we just say yeah. officer <clears throat> and defendant. Yeah. So Vega was a, an L.A. County deputy sheriff. He was responding to reports of a crime at a hospital that, you know, this guy, Tico or Tico, was accused of committing. He didn't Mirandize him. And in the meantime, this guy, you know, I think signed a confession or, you know, verbally gave one. Anyway, he, he said something that was, you know, potentially self-incriminating. That evidence was Yeah, suppressed. confessions are pretty incriminating. Yeah. That's typically how they convict most people. Most of the time, if you, if so, this is actually kind of useful advice. Not legal advice, this is legal education. But <laughs> if you, most of the time, you don't get convicted of really any crime unless you confess. It's just the police are really, really good at obtaining confessions, which is why you almost always want to exercise your right to an attorney and say absolutely nothing. But anyway, go on, David. Yeah. So anyway, in the original criminal proceeding, that, that confession was excluded as evidence. You know, they, they ruled, you know, he hadn't been properly Mirandized, so you can't use that evidence in the case. As you mentioned, poison fruit, right? It's up. So after that was resolved... That guy who had been accused of the crime and been investigated wanted to sue under Section 1983, as you mentioned, for damages pertaining to that failure to Mirandize him. Now, so that was the question in case, in this case, rather, whether failure to read the Miranda rights constituted a violation of his Fifth Amendment rights such that he could sue for damages under that law. Yeah. For, for the, under 1983, not yeah. under any other context, just whether or not it constituted a violation of his rights for the purposes of Section 1983. Right. And ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled, no, it doesn't count for that purpose. And the reasoning, now, unfortunately, I didn't have a time, uh, enough time to really dig deep into this case. So hopefully you did and can, you know, sort of elaborate a bit. Yeah, the reason but, is basically, basically what I said earlier. It's, yeah. it's that Miranda does not create rights. Miranda creates prophylactic rules to prevent the violation of rights. Yeah, because what, what the Fifth Amendment, you know, actually guarantees is not that the police will read a specific list of rights to you. That's not It's, what it's that you can't be compelled to be a witness against yourself. Right. And the way... And, and debatably, if the police are able to coercively extract confessions from people... They, they are compelling them to be witnesses against themselves. So we're going to be really careful and make sure that never, ever happens by creating a rule that guards against even the possibility of what, what could even look like a, a coerced confession. Right. So to that end, we want to make it clear that you have the right to remain silent and you have the right to an attorney so that nobody can come back and accuse a police officer of making a coerced confession. Yeah. So... Miranda then is not a right as such. It's a prophylactic rule. And that's consistent. Supreme Court's always treated it that way. It was described as a prophylactic rule even in the Miranda case. That's not new. Yeah. 
So, so what court ends up saying is because 1983 only works, you can only get damages against government agents if they violate a right protected by either the Constitution or a statute. Because Miranda does not create rights or does not recognize rights, but rather prophylactic rule to protect rights, no right has been violated. Ergo, you cannot seek damages for a violation of Miranda. Yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. No, I, I think as far as that goes, that was, you know, like I said, I, I was able to skim at least the actually the only the opinion of the court. I did not actually have a chance to read the dissent. I'm not sure if you did, but... Uh, I, I skimmed the dissent. Okay, so maybe... I can say, I do not agree with that decision. I do not agree with that decision. Because mm -hmm. the mere the mere fact... Well, actually, that kind of gets back to our Griswold discussion earlier, doesn't it? Yeah. So, so you can have rights that are stated in the Constitution, rights that are implied by the Constitution, rights that are found in the penumbras, rights that are implied by the Constitution, and apparently, although we don't really like these, rights that are in emanations cast by the penumbras of rights that are implied by rights that are explicitly found in the Constitution. Yeah. Where would I say that Miranda rights fall? I think somewhere between rights that are implied by the Constitution and rights that uh, are sort of penumbral to the Constitution. Yeah. I would not call Miranda a constitutional right, but Miranda is a procedural right. Yeah, no, that it, it's and that's how do we know that? How do we know that Miranda's a right? Because there's a remedy. Mm -hmm. Wherever there is a right, wherever there's a violation of a right, there must be a remedy. And wherever there is a remedy, the thing being remedied is the violation of a right. You know, those those things are necessary corollaries. What well, what's the remedy in the Miranda context? Exclusion of evidence. Right. You get a Miranda right violated, evidence obtained by that violation is exclusion of the evidence that you found by violating it. That's a right. You don't have to call that a constitutional right, but nevertheless, that's a procedural right. It's a right created by operation of law. I think that it does fall squarely under Section 1983. Supreme Court disagrees with me, so you know I end up losing that one. It's a real shame because Miranda rights get violated fairly often, and I think you really want to have some kind of stick to discourage police departments from doing that, other than just you know you won't convict the defendant. Right. You want to be able to seek some kind of compensation against them, but that's what we've lost now. I don't think it's a great decision. You know, sort of one of the standout ones from this term because most of the decisions this term were really, really solid. This is really one of the best Supreme Court terms in the history, or at least in living memory, that I can think of. But I would say this one, I think, could have been decided better. Yeah. And this one, you know, I, we didn't even mention on the prior case, but that one was a unanimous decision of the court. That was also noteworthy, I think. As we've said before, Unanimous decisions are yeah. actually quite common. That's a, another misconception I think that a lot of people have is that they're all controversial. That's not the case. And I think that one was... And Griswold was 7-2, by the way. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, so the, the uh, Becerra case, the hospital case, was an instance where I think that was just testament to the fact that it, you know, that the fact that it was unanimous is, is you know, partially pointing a, to a, uh, why it wasn't a case that could overturn Chevron because it was clear to everyone involved that DHS had not... You know, I guess I should clarify because there's They'd two. They've abused D their prerogative. Yeah, there, there's two DHSs now, aren't there? Because of Homeland Security. Do, which, oh, that's a fair point. Yeah, that's a fair I point. mean Health and Human Services. I guess I should say DHS. That, that's DHHS, yeah. technically, I believe. Yeah. But uh, that's harder to say. I meant they, they've got a human pretty. Services, I, I was just but, in DC. They've got a pretty dystopian-looking building. <laughs> you remember what that one looks like, David? The uh, you you sent us a photo of this actually. Yeah, just uh, 
you know, yeah. kind of a, a, a bit of a prison, like sort of rectangular concrete box with some sort of bulges on it that aren't very attractive. Anyway, so d- to clarify, and because I think I said it several times, when I said DHS in this context, I meant Department of Human Services. It's DHHS. Health and Human Services, so DHHS. He's collapsing the H. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> point is, the whole court, you know, clearly saw they hadn't read the statute right, so you don't even get to the meat of the, the Chevron question. This case, this, you know, Miranda-related case was not unanimous. This one was a 6-3 split with, you know, what you could call the left wing of the court being an opposition, basically. That tends to be a fairly common pattern when it comes to criminal procedural issues for whatever reason. Yeah, for whatever reason. Yeah. I don't under, you know, I've never understood that. I don't think it's intrinsic to conservative political philosophy to oppose a lot of, you know, these things. But for whatever reason, historically, it tended to go that way. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, the, the, the quote unquote conservative wing of the court tends to be a little bit adverse to rights of the accused, which is strange because they call themselves originalist. Yeah. But if you look at, you know, we, we just went over in our last podcast episode, the grievances listed in the Declaration of Independence huge proportion of those are criminal procedure type issues. Yeah. And as you know, those of you who listened to, I think it was part one of our July 4th special will note one of the things we pointed out is a good reason to be happy not to be a part of England anymore is that they don't automatically exclude illegally obtained or, you know, otherwise, you know, in improperly obtained evidence from criminal trials. It's just sort of up to the judge. I think it's, you know, one of the better things about our system that that's stuff- yeah is presumptively excluded. Yeah, it's, it's odd to me that the, that the ostensibly originalist wing of the court goes the way that it does on these issues. Yeah. Uh, I would say Le- Lex Rex is very, we have a very strong view of rights of the accused. We believe that's consistent with the founder's vision. We believe that's consistent with the text of the United States Constitution. You bet, what, what's, the, what's the phrase? Better a thousand guilty people go free than that a single innocent man be convicted. And, yeah, because, you know, all of your rights... Because he's innocent. Yeah, well, I was going to say, all of your rights matter. All of them are what the Constitution exists to protect. We shouldn't be in the business, really, of sort of picking and choosing which ones we think are better rights and worse rights. And you, you do not, I mean, I think that the police power is very important, but you do not have a right to be protected from criminals. That's not something the government guarantees. They don't violate your rights when somebody commits a criminal act. You do have a right not to be wrongly convicted. Yeah. That's why it's you know much, much better that guilty people go free than that an innocent man be convicted because we don't want the government violating people's rights. That's much, much more important than any other duty the government has. The government principally exists to protect people's rights. Yeah. And it's... So the most important thing government can do is make sure that it itself is not violating your rights. Second most important thing it can do is make sure that other people aren't violating your rights. But it obviously, you know, it's not doing much good at all if it makes sure that other people aren't violating your rights while it itself continues to do so. So you got to make sure that the government has its own ducks in the row before it starts trying to make sure that other people are not violating your rights. That's the reason for that maxim. It's just, it's outside the purview what government can do. So, yeah, yeah. that's, we take a strong view on that. Uh, I do think this, this decision was wrongly made because I, I think that if any right is violated, even one that is n- not necessarily one that's required by the text of the Fourth Amendment, is nevertheless a recognized right, a judicially recognized right. Maybe it shouldn't have been, but nevertheless it was. 
that yeah. ought to be compensable. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, all that to say, you know, in, again, I do want to underscore the fact that, you know, I think some of the panic around it, especially the sort of regurgitated social media type takes, were all about, you know, oh, the court just basically gutted Miranda. Guts Miranda. Yeah, which it didn't do in the context when most people think about Miranda rights, which is when you've been arrested or being interrogated or, you know, whatever, in your interaction with the police where they are trying to obtain evidence against you, nothing has changed. It actually has nothing to do with Miranda rights. It it has to do with 1983 rights when it pertains to Miranda. Right, exactly. So Nothing to do with Miranda rights. Yeah, so it is a... I guess a sort of smaller isn't the right word, but a different question than I think a lot of people had the impression that it was actually addressing. But nonetheless, you know, as you've said, you know, maybe not a well-decided case, but yeah. Anyway, now it's time for legal hot takes. Yeah. So what's our name for that this week, David? Oh boy. Uh, I did not think of one, so let me see. Let me give me like ten seconds to see if I can just spitball something off the top of my head. And if not, we're just gonna call it hot takes, and I'll probably concede defeat, and we'll just call it hot takes from here on out. But <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, I'm in a very sort of out of the frying pan kind of place. You know, it's like jazz; you got to sort of freeform it. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I got anything for this. We might just we might just hit the point where we're calling. All right, it hot hit me with first hot take, David. Okay. Hold we got we got to do them real fast. Yeah, let me pull this up. Oh, actually, it looks like I decided that we're just calling it hot takes from now on because I I renamed the folder to just hot takes. So I so it's not a mistake. David did this intentionally. He just <laughs> forgot about it. It's hot takes now. Okay. And we're back to Twitter again. All right. Yes, so are. Kelly McArdle says, please explain. Constitutional amendments can be repealed. Prohibition, 18th and 21st Amendments. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying it's possible. Repeal the second and add a new amendment banning guns. Then Shane Stokes says, actually, the Bill of Rights can't be because it's protected. Yeah. Okay, both of these people are stupid (laughs) for different reasons. The first guy is stupid because he wants to repeal the Second Amendment. Uh, But he is correct that you can do that. I'm not sure. I don't understand why anybody would want to strip themselves of constitutionally protected rights. Well, you don't have to own a gun if you don't want one. No one's making you do that. It's actually a a sort of a reflection of what we were just talking about from the, you know, with regard to the government. But in this case, it's actually about private citizens. It's I think you get this position when you're more concerned that someone will violate somebody else's rights than you are making sure that their rights aren't violated so that's a good point that's a good point yes it's it's sort of the if a conservative is overly afraid of criminals they say well criminals shouldn't have any rights then or suspected criminals shouldn't have any rights uh when accused if a if a liberal person is afraid of criminals they say well nobody should have yeah, better the, that you the not rights have that the rights that. <laughs> that would allow you to, in certain circumstances, violate someone else's rights. So, you yeah. know, I think... You That's know, a good point. I hadn't looked at it that way before. Yeah, you, it's, you're right. That's what's it, going on. I, I What I think is, is interesting is that, that that particular aspect of the whole gun debate has been the battleground when, you know, no one is disputing that it is wrong for you to take a gun and kill somebody in cold blood for no reason, et cetera, you know, 
I think we could all agree. No, that's pretty universally yeah, agreed upon. That's wrong, that's... and we have laws against that. The problem is called murder. Yeah, the problem then becomes, you know, you want to add a new rule that stops prophylactic me rule from just yeah, but one that doesn't apply to the government, and that's that's I think the important <laughs> distinction here is that yeah, and I've alluded to this before. I want to talk about this at some point. We probably should at some point address the fact that law doesn't actually work quite the same way when you're talking about government versus when you're talking about individuals because no. the it work well we talked about this before it works almost opposite yeah government needs a rule to say that it can do something yeah and, and what's individuals the, need a rule to say that they can't do something we are presumed to be able to do everything that is not prohibited by law right. government is presumed not to be able to do anything that it has not been explicitly enabled to do yeah. by law. And the reason for that is that sovereignty resides ultimately in the people. So yeah. we have to delegate that power to the government in order for it to be able to exercise that power. But let me jump to why Shane Stokes <laughs> is wrong. Yeah. Sadly, Shane Stokes, the Second Amendment supporter, the person who likes our well, Constitution. Pr presumably. We don't know if he's actually happy about what he thinks is the case here. I think probably. Fair enough, fair enough. But, you know. Fair enough. But, <laughs> but sadly, the person who is defending the Second Amendment here is actually the more wrong of the two because the Bill of Rights absolutely can be repealed by an amendment. In fact, anything in the Constitution can be changed by an amendment. Yeah. It, it, absolutely anything. I, in I, fact, we know this because it's happened before. Yeah. And when we held our constitutional convention way back in 1787, that was done to revise the Articles of Confederation. But because a constitutional convention, by definition, can change whatever it wants about the Constitution, they brought back to the state legislatures, who ultimately referred it to a plebiscite in those states, uh, the concept of throwing it out entirely and replacing it with a new Constitution, which then the people said, yeah, we want to do that. That makes sense for us to do. No, you can throw any of it out. Yeah. If you go through the constitutionally approved channels for creating an amendment, including the Second Amendment. I don't advise you do that. No. Um, I, I don't think you ought to be lobbying to get any part of the Bill of Rights thrown out. I think the Bill of Rights is sort of the greatest hits of the rights. You know, there, there were a lot good. of other ones yeah, no. that were originally proposed as things that could have been options for the Bill of Rights. And just the 10 that pretty much everybody could agree on were the ones that made it in there. Yeah, but they those are, are not... kind of beyond dispute. Yeah. If you don't think that we ought to have those, you're probably kind of historically ignorant. No offense, <laughs> but you know th those are yeah. good ones we ought to keep. Yeah, but I I am fascinated by this concept of there being like a special class of parts of the Constitution that you can't change, and we don't know why or how or what says they're special, but just somehow they are, and those ones you can't change. I I'm. Because it's that. protected, he said. <laughs> right, but by what or whom? You know? they, hit, they hit the lock button next to those 10. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've locked this draft for editing. Yeah, it's read-write protected now. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I hadn't considered that. You know, maybe we need to go back and check the original computer files that the convention was working yeah. on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So first take down. Let's move on to the next one. As a corporate lawyer, this is I'm yeah. reading the, the hot take again now. Yeah. As a corporate lawyer, the most ridiculous argument I come across almost monthly is as follows. Fortune 500 company signs a garbage contract and is going to lose a lot of money due to the plain language of that contract. Fortune 500 company argues unconscionability. Specifically, that said company was not sophisticated enough to read the contract and no reasonable person would ever agree to the term or terms in dispute. In some multi-billion dollar firm claims that they are incapable of reading contracts. Now, 
This is a loaded way that this guy is choosing to complain about this issue. But uh-huh. I did think this was a good window to talk about unconscionability. And maybe we can get into just sort of because there was another take that I have saved that I'm not going to use. But basically, someone just said anything is legal if there's a contract for it. Now, <laughs> that is uh. not true. And there are many reasons why that's not true. But okay, a- anything is legal if there is a valid contract for it. <laughs> yeah. But in order for a contract to be valid, it's got to meet certain requirements. Uh, one of which is that it, it can't be unconscionable. Yeah. So, so. Uh, unconscionability does not have to do with just having terms that are stupid or terms that nobody would agree to. Unconscionability is really sort of as the term implies about a contract with terms that shock the conscience. Yeah. You know, terms that are extremely unjust or unscrupulous. Generally, that's going to apply to contracts that are very, very one-sided. Call those contracts oppressive. Usually, if one of the parties has a great deal more power than the other party, it's going to be more likely to be an unconscionable contract. Very unlikely you're going to find any contract that a Fortune 500 company signs to be unconscionable because they've got a lot of power. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, very one-sided contracts because one of the things that, you know, you need to have for a contract to be in place and and to be valid is consideration. So, in other words, you're, you're giving something up. You need to be getting something back for that to be valid. Like, otherwise, you're just, you know, you're kind of just making a promise that has no actual legal weight to it. If you're just mm-hmm. like, I will cede all my rights and get nothing back. That's not actually That's exactly right, David. Yep. enforceable. But, you know, I struggle to imagine how... You've got to get something out of a contract or it's not a contract, it's just a gratuitous promise. Yeah. Both parties, there needs to be a benefit to the contractor or a detriment, detriment to the contractee. Yeah. And that, that has to go both ways. If there's no benefit or detriment going both ways, then it's just a gratuitous promise. And gratuitous promises are not enforceable unless there's promissory estoppel. Yeah. Well, and we, we won't get into what Estoppel is right now, but I do want to comment, you know. Reliance, that, basically. Re- yeah. uh, just reliance upon the, the terms of the, the promise. That will probably need to be explained at some point, too. But again, <laughs> we're running late, so I'm going to hustle fast and just say, I do agree with this guy that I struggle to imagine a major company entering into a They're just trying to get out of the contract. From which. You, you're yeah. always going to list all the reasons that could plausibly apply. Yeah. I doubt they expect to win on unconscionability. I'm sure it's yeah. listed among 12 other things. All right, Thanks. so here's the next one. Is this is this Twitter? I can't tell. Yes, it is. Okay. Take she 7 I believe that's supposed to be Takeshi, said, but go on. Uh, Takeshi7. Gosh, that was, that was very bad of me. Uh, <laughs> every right in the Bill of Rights is an individual right. It's not a right if you need to be a member of an organization to exercise it. Yeah, okay, so that's that's part one. And then the response. Oh, is, is, that, is that refuting the state militia thing? Probably. Or an, an attempt to refute the state militia thing? Because some of the rights absolutely apply to states. That's an organization. Yeah. You know, if you say that, that you know, that, that, that the right is retained by the states or the people, the state's an organization, right? I mean, so it's not true. But yeah. Anyway, uh, brush up on your reading comprehension. This is the response now from RT. He says, brush up on your reading comprehension skills, bot hole. That's an and insult if you graduated from bot. For the record, if you're not familiar with that uh, Twitter slang. Or a hole in a bot. <laughs> I suppose. And, it, and if you graduated from eighth grade, request a refund. People, religion, press, government, and assemble 
refer to groups, not individuals. That's a very stupid response. Yeah, that's not a good guy originally said. Not a good argument. That's a really stupid response. All of those. Yeah, those are rights that may be exercised in concert by individuals. They're not rights that are possessed by those things as groups. Also, you know, it's worth noting that just grammatically, you know, religion and press are not groups. Those are actually, you know, those are grammatically single. But um, yeah, you'd think that he would say establishment or prohibiting yeah. the establishment thereof, because that is a group. Yeah. The religion part is not a group. The establishment part is a group. Yeah. And press is actually, you know, come to think of it, that my comment there probably. That's actually a machine. Yeah. It's it's a synecdoche referring to a printing press as a, as a way of, you know, talking. It means about the, the use of printing presses yeah. to like make newspapers. Yeah. So that's not a group either. That's actually a machine referring to a person. I mean, maybe it takes more than one person to use a printing press. I don't really have any idea. I don't but think it each does, of them has that right individually. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, I do. so you're not free, apparently, according to this person, to practice your religion unless you do it as part of a group. So if you're, you know, going to pray. Because, your home. No, because religion is inherently a group word, he says. Yeah, that's which, as I said, you know, that's that's just incorrect. Religion is an abstract noun. It's not a refer. So it's it's both it's both in. So let me let. So the, looking just at religion here, it is incorrect because religion is not a group. It's an abstract noun. Yeah. It is begging the question. Yeah. Because I could absolutely refer to an individual's expression of religion. So by insisting that it's a group, it's engaging in a basic logical fallacy. That's begging the question. It's also worse than the other example he could have used for the same thing, which is, <laughs> or prohibiting the establishment, I'm sorry, um, or creating an establishment thereof. Yeah. You could have just referred to establishment as a group. That's much more plausible, although that would still be pretty dumb. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um. Gosh, who does he think assembles? Like, yeah. I get that assemble is something you do in a group, right. but like and even that word, that word itself should suggest to you that, that at one point these people were not together and they came together to create an assembly. Yeah. And it's the same, you know, the same issue. They're not a corporation. Slightly you know? more indirectly <laughs> applies to people because a people is made up of persons, individual people who then, you know, you can talk about as a group, but that doesn't mean that only you know, in perfect concert of all people, can we exercise any of the rights that refer to the yeah. people? That's just so both of these people are very wrong. <laughs> uh, the first guy was wrong because there absolutely are rights in the Bill of Rights that apply to groups, specifically states. Yeah. And then the second guy was wrong for much dumber reasons. Like I would say the first guy like kind of philosophically had it right. Yeah. Right. You know, like most of the Bill of Rights devolves upon individuals. Rights are something that pertains to individuals, whether corporately or or because you know, a state is a person. A corporation is a person. Yeah. I mean they're they're persons that are made up of amalgams of the actions of other people, but it isn't just groups of people that you're referring to. It's actually new entities that are created by agreement between people, you know, contractual entities is what you're referring to there. Yeah. So, yeah, that guy philosophically had it correct when he said rights devolve upon individuals. The second guy, RT, just nothing about that's correct. Just every part <laughs> of that is wrong. Uh, and I think that he should probably ask for his money back from eighth grade. <laughs> Actually, no, from like first grade. Because isn't first grade like where you learn what categories and concepts are? 
When, when do you learn that? I mean, when do they say like, this thing is red, this thing is a square, <laughs> circle is not a square, triangle is different from a circle. Like when do you, well, what yeah, do you like, learn I that? Mean, I feel like you've already gotten, certainly by like third or fourth grade at the very latest, I'm sure you've heard people talk about, you know, all squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Like, and that's, yeah. you know, that's certainly that same kind of group versus, uh, or, yes. you know, I suppose uh, genus versus species issues, um, but yeah. So it, so it, so first grade. Are we saying conservatively? I guess we could say like third grade. Third grade. Yeah. Okay. So it, at least he ought to ask for his money from fourth grade back. Yeah, you know, I yeah. doubt that that guy actually spent. Mister RT, if you want to bring that suit against your your elementary school, if you would like to ask for your parents' tax contribution to your government school back from fourth grade <laughs> onward. Call us. That's a suit that we could potentially bring on your behalf. I think that you are well within your rights to bring. <laughs> you know, that's a joke. I don't. I don't think he would actually succeed on that. Yeah. Because I don't think they have any obligation to educate you because the edu- You know, it's. They're anyway. not going to create any affirmative obligation upon the part of themselves to do that. Certainly not one that's compensable. So. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I get this is a probably the opportunity for us to bring back the old chestnut. A dollar a day can keep a person like this off of Twitter by helping us educate them as to why they should be ashamed to say this kind of thing. Anyway, uh, I guess, yeah. I guess that'll probably wrap it up. Um, it's, it's, I, you know, we don't have, we don't currently have the staff to do this, but if anybody wants to go around and sort of share this podcast with people who got it <laughs> wrong, uh, this guy's Twitter handle is at R T R I V E S R E S I S T E R. Yeah. So if you want to share this with him, please go ahead and do that. Uh, he really needs it. I'm not sure what something resistor. I I think like root Reeves resistor. I, I you know I'm confused by his handle. But um, anyway, yeah, we can we can help people like this if if they would just give us a chance. <laughs> But yes, yeah. So what's the what's the other guy's handle we were talking about uh, earlier? We should give think, that one what out. What was too. it? Takeshi Seven? Oh, actually, because it's it's there because he's replying to it's that first one. No, I meant the guy from the first one. That oh, oh, like. that guy. Yeah, hold on. Let me pull that up. Um, that guy. Well, the 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 guy who just wanted to repeal this. Twitter is public, right? Like we're not publicizing private stuff, are we? No, no, no. no. It's it, yeah. These these are all public. Uh, the first guy who wasn't actually wrong about the legal point he was making, but was wrong to want to repeal the second amendment. That was at K S McArdle, M C A R D L E. And the other guy was at true underscore is underscore real. True is real with true is real. Yeah. Anyway, all these people, you know, just please find a way to get our, our message. Untrue is real as well. <laughs> untrue is also real. All right. Anyway, that's, I think we're, it's real as an untruth. We've, we've gotten far enough away from the subject matter that I think that's probably a good time to call it quits. So thank you for listening. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Thank you for listening. We hope that you'll listen again. Yes. And we, we may split this up and have another bonus episode midweek. We'll see. <laughs> with, we'll see. Maybe with just our Supreme Court hot take, actually. That might be a good way to do it. We'll see. Anyway. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Everybody have a great weekend. Or I guess you're getting this on Monday. So week. I shouldn't say that. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. And we'll see you all again next Monday, if not sooner, because of the length of this episode. Night, everyone. All right. Bye.